0: My dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ and young people, we come this evening to our last study in the series on the life of David for 1999. I understand that two weeks hence we're due to hold the half yearly business meeting, so this will be the last class for the year. It surely is a reminder, certainly is to me, how very rapidly time is going and uh, when we are occupied in the things of the truth plus the other affairs of life, how very, very quickly time passes. It's no wonder that the scripture tells us that our life is but a vapour and it is indeed, that's a very true thing. Of course we do find in the truth that we no sooner seem to start a new year of activity than before we know where we are, we've come to the end of another year and still awaiting the return of our Lord. So let's all take the usual lesson that we should from that. The time passes very, very rapidly. And with all of us, we never know how much time we've got. I think that's a lesson that we've seen in the life of David on numerous occasions in our studies up to this point. No one knows how much time they've got. Certainly Saul didn't know, and others associated with David. Abner didn't know. Asahel didn't know. And so we're all really in that position, aren't we? We live from day to day, Awaiting the Lord's return, and each day we must live by faith. It's the only principle that is of any value to us in our life in the truth. And so as we come to the end of another year of study, we come to consider the way in which these two bandits, as the Jerusalem Bible refers to them as, take it into their head that they will get rid of one of David's great enemies, one of the few surviving ones that would possibly stand against him and thereby win the favour of David. And so as we read there in verse 6, these two very, very uh, uh, doubtful villains, Bana and Rechab, in verse 6, they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat and they smote him under the fifth rib and Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. So here we have them getting away as it says in verse uh, 7 that when they came into the house he lay on his bed in his bedchamber and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and kept them away through the plain all night. So here is uh, this dastardly deed now performed. They uh, take him in all his innocency in regard to this matter he was not prepared to defend himself, which of course the law would have permitted him to do at that time. And uh, so this very dastardly deed is performed. They take the head, and it says they gap them away through the plain all night. That's just a reminder of uh, where we are and uh, where we have been. Uh, we did show this a uh, little time ago, a few nights ago. That's all the on, on this side. Just to remind you where we are, over on the east of Jordan, over here, is Mahanaim, which is the place to which uh, Abner had taken uh, uh, ish to make him king. The red dot we put there, just to give us all some idea of the, uh, the way in which uh, um, uh, we, we associate all these other places, the red dot is Jerusalem. Over here, of course, is Gideon, the pool of Gideon. And here is Hebron, where David is. So they have to journey from here over to here. And uh, that's what they're about to do now. They travel, according to the record here, through the night. And where it says that they got them away through the plain, the word there is the word alabar. And as we probably know, the whole of this area here, down the length of the Jordan Valley, is known And from the Dead Sea, the southern point of the Dead Sea, right down to the Gulf of Aqaba, that is known as the alabar. Which means simply a plain, that it's known commonly in the land as the Arabar. So they're now intent upon ingratiating themselves to David because of a wonderful deed they performed in his service. So verse 8 tells us that they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And Yahweh hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul. And his seed. Now they're obviously very, very pleased with themselves. And isn't there a remarkable comparison here with chapter 1 and the Amalekite who came to David with very similar news that he thought would be very favourably received? Saul is dead. And uh, so you can just imagine David's reaction at this particular point. If we just go back for a moment to chapter 1 and verse 14 where David said under the Amalekite, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. Justice came very swiftly to that man who probably didn't realise what was happening to him. But David acted in regard to that matter. But here we are dealing with a couple of really murderous thugs. And you'll notice that in this verse, verse 8, we find that David permits them to speak for themselves. In other words, one really has to be condemned out of one's own mouth when it comes to a matter such as this. So we can imagine David's reaction to their words in verse 8. David answered in verse 9, Rechab and Rabana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Beirothite, And said unto them, As Yahweh liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought me good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would give him a a reward for his tidings. So that's how David handled the matter. But first of all, he let them go ahead and make their speech so that they might condemn themselves. And that is exactly what he had allowed the Amalekite to do. And they say to him, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy which sought thy life. Now the words concerning Saul, that he was David's enemy, certainly may well have been true enough. We're not doubting that. But the implication concerning the unfortunate Ishbosheth was quite without any foundation whatever. The reference to David's seed. Also being David's enemies, we know, for example, a very close affinity between David and Jonathan. That was a total untruth. So there was part truth mix, mixed with part error, which is never a very, very good mixture. You see, there's no evidence whatever that Ishbosheth had deliberately sought the life of David. We know that he had, by and large, been a tool, a mere tool in the hands of the very ambitious, ruthlessly ambitious Abner. For example, if we just go back a, a page to, a page two to chapter two, remember there in verse eight and nine, where we read that Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and made him king. And the last line in the verse, verse nine, is over all Israel. He made him king. May even have been that Ishbosheth, certainly being the rather weak person that he was not really well equipped to be a fighting man or a leader or a warrior. He might not have even wanted to be a made a king. But Adna made him a king. He had to have someone of the seed of Saul, a descendant of Saul. So you see, here Ishbosheth meets the end that he does because he allowed himself to be manipulated by somebody else. And surely there is a great lesson there and many other lessons that we would not have the time to pause to deal with tonight. But Ishbosheth had allowed himself to be manipulated by the ruthlessly ambitious Abner, and now it brought about his own death. So the point of it all is that we have to know what is right, and be prepared to stand by what is right, to defend what is right, no matter what the consequences might be to ourselves, it may even cost us our life. I know that there are, we are all, all, all aware that there are many references, instances in scripture where men had lost their lives because they stood in defence of the truth. So you see, if Ishbosheth had come to grips with a fact, as he well knew, that Yahweh had caused David to be anointed, the next king of Israel, the one who was to follow in the steps of his father after his death, Ishbosheth knew that. If he had in some way made a stand, until I'm not going to be manipulated by you, Adna. I know what the word reveals. I know what God has said. David is to be the next king. He would not have lost his life at this point. So, Yahweh, says this, these men, uh, glibly mouthing the divine name, the name of God, Yahweh hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And it's interesting to contemplate how readily evil men will take up piously the name of Yahweh when it has suited their own wicked purpose. There is no evidence whatever that these two men had ever appealed to Yahweh for guidance or instruction in the great step that they had taken and the deed that they had performed. They simply desired to ingratiate themselves to David and yet they will call upon the divine name, the name of David's God, as though he is behind this, and it's all his work, and that David should be very pleased to have the support not only of these two great men, but also of Yahweh himself, so that really they were no different to the Amalekite in chapter 1, except that their crime was worse, which we'll look at in a moment. So these two evil men reasoning upon similar lines to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, whose offspring they were in any event, simply wanted to be on the winning side. They could see what was happening, they could see what was developing, they didn't really care whose side it was that they were on, although they appear to have had no special love for Saul. But you see, the whole point of this is, that the question of right or wrong didn't mean anything to these two men. It meant nothing to them at all. The question of right or wrong may have meant something to Ishbosheth, who was certainly not in this category, but his problem was that he didn't do anything about standing for what was right. But with these two men, they were prepared to manipulate what was right or what was wrong, which meant nothing to them, so long as they came out in front. Now that's not the principle of the way things are done according to the Scriptures. That was all that mattered to them. As long as they made a killing in some way, that they gained a a standing in the eyes of David and that they were on the right side at the time when everything came to a head. So they really believed that David was going to come out of this on top one way or another. So uh, they must have said to themselves, what can we do that will endear us to David and ensure that uh, we advance our own cause same reasoning as Abner, isn't it? Really. Abner had done the same things for the same reasons. And when they asked themselves this question, what can we do that will endear us to David and advance our own cause? Having asked themselves that question, they came up with a wrong answer. And really, they couldn't do anything else, could they? Because they were not moved by the spirit of the truth. You see... It is not a matter of sides. Who is on this side and who is on that side? We're not interested in sides. In ecclesial life, as members of the family of God. We're not interested in sides. We're interested in what the truth says. What the truth is. Where we should stand and why. So, you see, we come now with these two men who are about to pay for their folly to the question of motive. That's also highly relevant to what these men did in the same way as it's very highly relevant to what we do. Because, you see, our motive will always colour our view of whatever we do, so, therefore, our motive had better be right. Because if our motive is wrong, we're going to have a, a coloured vision that's going to point us in the wrong direction. So our motive has got to be right and soundly based upon the spiritual principles of the truth. But if like these two men we were to become deluded through a wrong motive, we may suddenly find the reality of our situation when in the words of Psalm 7 and verse 15 we find that we fall into the pit that we have digged. So we need to always carefully examine our own motive first and only then will we be sure that we are acting with integrity in the decisions that we make and especially that we are acting with integrity in the eyes of Yahweh. Now you see, it's important that we mention that in regard to these men because now in verse 9 we see the mind of David revealed to us. David answered, Recab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Beerothite, and said unto them, "As Yahweh liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity, as Yahweh liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity." See what David is saying. You two fellows think that you've done something great to help me in my cause. You think that you've acted in a way that's going to bring you a reward. You, You think you've pleased me in what you've done. But I want you to know this. It has been Yahweh who has protected me, not flesh. Not men like you or any other men either. So he's telling it exactly how it had been. It had been Yahweh who had protected David, not flesh. And David had no need whatever for the help of a couple of murderous thugs such as these fellows. And he gives them the lesson as to why they're going to pay the price that they will. In verse 10, he says to them, When one told me, he doesn't mention the Amalekite by name or by identity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings? Notice the wording here too. You see, very quickly in David's mind, he summed up these two men and identified them with the same motive and the same ignorant mind of the Amalekite, as recorded in chapter 1. When one told me Saul is dead, look at these words that follow, thinking to have brought good tidings. Thinking to have brought good tidings. He'd been thinking alright, but it was serpent thinking. The same as it was with these two men. The Amalekite didn't understand David's character, nor did these men. The Amalekite thought that David would have been delighted in the death of Saul and the members of his household. So did these thoughtless men. So David says, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag. But it's better as we have it in the Jerusalem Bible. The man who thought to bring me good news, when he told me Saul was dead, this man I seized and killed at Ziklag, rewarding him for his good news. You see the irony in the statement. Rewarding him for his good news. Very heavy irony there, isn't there? And so in verse 11, how much more when wicked men had slain a righteous person in his own house upon his death. You see, at least the Amalekite had not actually slain anybody. But it was the way he handled the death of Saul they were so offensive, and the fact that he had, by his own admission, he claimed to have slain Saul. But we know different to that. We know that the record in First of Samuel chapter 31 is the accurate record. But these men, their crime is greater. Their crime was far worse than that of the Amalekite, because as David says here, how much more when wicked, wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house? upon his bed. And again, the Jerusalem Bible, then there's it, how much more when bandits had killed an honest man in his house and on his bed. Puts it far more graphically, doesn't it? And we can imagine David making that statement as he would have fixed a piercing gaze upon their faces. How much more when bandits had killed an honest man in his house and on his bed. Or rather, and renders it, when lawless men have slain a righteous person. So he contrasts their character and their actions and their evil deeds with the innocency of Ishbosheth, at least in regard to this matter. You see, it does appear, doesn't it, that David had a strong feeling of compassion for Ishbosheth. No doubt he had some idea fairly deeply grasped. As to the way in which Ishbosheth had been manipulated by Abner, it's quite evident that he feels some compassion here for Ishbosheth, recognizing him more as a, a a man of weakness rather than a really wicked man. And it's important for us to notice that David held no personal animosity against Ishbosheth, although in effect he is a king because he's been made such by Abner in opposition to David's position. And here is David now awaiting the very moment when the elders of all the tribes are going to come together and be gathered together at Hebron and make David king over all the United tribes. He's just waiting for that moment. You might think that he would be saying, Well, it's at least a good thing that Ishbosheth is out of the way. I don't have to worry about him anymore. I don't wish him any harm, but it's just as well he's out of the way and gone. But that's not David. It's not David's way, it's not his character. He doesn't believe that Ishbosheth had been uh, uh, worthy of the death, the dreadful death and murder to which he had been subjected. And he held no animosity whatever against Ishbosheth. Things like that come out in David's character again and again and again. So he says to these two ruthless bandits Shall I not therefore now require his blood? You're going to pay for what you did. And of course what he is referring to there is Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 10. That innocent blood be not shed in thy land, that the blood of the innocent be required at thy hand. And so David would administer justice according to the law of Yahweh. He would give mercy where mercy was required where mercy was allowable. And in this sense, we have this example of the fact that there are the two sides to the divine character. One is justice, the other is mercy. Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 22, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. The justice and the mercy. And we do know that Yahweh is the only one who is capable and that his character was likewise manifested in his son also. The only one capable of correctly and and accurately, perfectly balancing those two qualities of justice and mercy. We know the Lord Jesus Christ did it. If we keep a finger in Samuel here and go to John chapter 5, first of all, John 5 and... Uh, Uh, verse 30. We find the Lord telling us there what He did and why He did things. We know that He never, He never hesitated to, uh, speak of judgment to come upon the wicked and the evil. We know how He condemned the scribes and the Pharisees. They were not interested in learning the truth from Christ, or acknowledging who he was, or worshipping God in the spirit of the truth. They had their own idea about religion. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees. That's the Son of God. So in John 5 and verse 30 he says, I can of mine own self do nothing. Why? Because he was a manifestation of the Father's character. He didn't want to be doing things in his own name, for his own purpose. I can of mine own self do nothing. But, as I hear, I judge. And the one who he listened to was his Father. As I hear, we could paraphrase that, as I hear from my Father, the words of my Father, I judge, and my judgment is just. So he might as well have said, and if I condemn the Pharisees to eternal darkness in the grave, it is because that is just. But similarly, in chapter 7 and at verse 24, he tells his disciples that they must do the same thing. Not condemn the Pharisees to eternal death, but to judge according to the spirit of the truth. John 7 and verse 24, he says to the disciples, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And You know, every day of our lives we are making judgments, mainly concerning ourselves. Should we do this? Yes, of course we should, because that would be in the spirit of the truth. It's in accordance with the word. Should we do that? No, we should not do that, because that is contrary to the spirit of the truth. We're making decisions like that all day long, every one of us. What are they? They're judgments. And the Lord says, Judge not according to the appearance. In other words, don't become manipulated, either within yourself or elsewhere or whatever, but judge righteous judgment. Now that is what David is doing here. So he says, Shall I now therefore, shall I not therefore now require his blood? So they paid. And in verse 12 it says, They slew them. Of course, next to that we might write Romans 6 and verse 23, which is that passage that tells us the wages of sin is death. And these men had been abysmally ignorant. They hadn't known what they were doing. They were abysmally ignorant in the action, the incredible, appalling action that they had taken. But ignorance is never an excuse, is it? And ignorance is always disastrous when it comes to meddling in divine things. Ignorance will always be disastrous when meddling in divine things. The serpent found that out in the garden of Eden. Has not God said, I shall eat of all the trees in the garden? Invoke God. It's quite alright, go ahead. But you see in Hosea 4 and verse 6 we learn... But my people are destroyed, said Yahweh, for lack of knowledge. Because they were ignorant. They spoke about things they didn't understand. They should have got their understanding first and then spoken. Notice, for example, in Isaiah chapter 27 uh, and at verse 11. Notice the comment that is made there regarding the failure of Israel in regard to these things. They dealt with things and spoke about things that they didn't understand. And it was their own fault that they were ignorant. They were neither equipped nor qualified to speak about the things that they did. Isaiah 27 and verse 11. This is dealing with Yahweh's vineyard. When the boughs thereof are withered, speaking of the destruction to come upon the kingdom. When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire for it is a people of no understanding. A people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them and he that formed them will show them no favour. They didn't understand the things that they were responsible to fulfil. It's always wise not to be ignorant. These men, of course, thought that they were doing right for David. They meant well, they might say, and perhaps they screamed out those very words just before the sword landed upon them. We meant well, they might have very well said. We meant well. Have mercy on us. We meant well. But it is not enough to mean well. We must do well according to whatever the spirit of the truth requires. And so you see, David's life, in the things that he said to them here, in passing judgment upon them, they probably didn't even understand or comprehend why they were being punished in the way that they were, why their lives were forfeit. They were ignorant men. They had no understanding. But David's life was guided by lofty principles that were too high for mere men of the flesh to grasp. These men couldn't understand David's character at all. But they made the fatal mistake of judging the standards of Yahweh and the standards of David by their own fleshly standards. That's why they thought that David would be pleased with them. But David, of course, like Yahweh, was no respecter of persons and would deal impartially with all With everyone. And David became known for this attribute. He judged according to the spirit of the word, whatever was required. And that was an attitude to inspire, in other men, confidence in David's ability to lead that nation. As the king that they needed. If they did what was right, they had nothing to fear from David. If they stood for the truth and defended the hope of Israel, they had nothing to fear from David, only his approbation, only his love and his fellowship. So they knew that, and when those things were established, it was then evident that it was only evildoers who had need to fear a man such as David. And after the uh, manner in which David had handled the matter of the death of Abner and now this action on behalf of uh, Ish-bosheth, you see the word would have spread again among all the rest of the tribes and they would have seen that David had acted correctly. It would have been evident to all that rather than being a vindictive man, David was just and merciful in his dealings with with all. While he brought justice down heavily upon the offenders, he did in effect show mercy to the house of Saul by vindicating ish in that he refused to be in any way associated with the evil deed that had been done. And so he cut off their, they cut off their hands and their feet, which according to the narrative here would have been done after their death. It was not a barbaric act. It was a symbolic gesture to impress upon others that the hands were cut off the very hands that had committed the cold blooded murder. The feet were cut off that had borne the trophy of the head of Ishbosheth all the way to David. And that would have provided a salutary lesson to everyone. So David took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner. Something important about that. Why the sepulchre of Abner? Because we remember that Abner had been buried with honour. Abner had been buried with honour in the presence of David the king. So that in this action, David was shown to all Israel that he regarded the deaths of Abner and Ishbosheth similarly. similarly, united together in their death. He repudiated the evil that was associated with their death, their deaths. Of course, we know that David was not a hypocrite and the sadness that he expresses at the death of Ishbosheth was real and genuine and how his attitude could be contrasted with a man of the world who rates everything according to success in life. A man of the world, a businessman striving to get to the top doesn't care how he gets there as long as he gets there. He will climb his way over all the bodies that get get in his road until he gets right to the top that's the man of the world. So that he's elevated to a position of power and authority. And in doing so, he becomes quite indifferent to the losses or the sufferings of others. They themselves have made it. And nothing much else matters to men of the flesh. Apart from their own success and their own achievements. But we can see that David was totally different to that. And absolutely repudiated that philosophy. And this he does when he takes the head of his and causes it to be buried in the sepulchre of Abner. What a wonderful gesture. And so here we come then at the end of this chapter to the final turning point as far as David's advancement toward the throne of Israel is concerned. And yet, as we come to the beginning of chapter 5, then came all the tribes of Israel to David under Hebron and spake saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. We will make thee the king. As we come to that point, and we've mentioned that events have now advanced to the point where David is now to be made king. Yet how remarkable it is, and how utterly sublime that David has done not a single thing toward advancing his own cause toward the throne. He has done not a single thing. And yet here it is now, right before him. And all obstacles to his reaching the throne of the united twelve tribes have now been totally removed and he had had no hand in any of them. He had believed the word of Yahweh when as a young lad of no more than 17 years of age Samuel had anointed him and said, Yahweh anoint you as to be the next king over Israel. He believed Yahweh, the same as it is said of Abraham. He was a true spiritual descendant of Abraham, as well as a literal descendant. He trusted in Yahweh. He believed what God said, and he had left it in the hand of Yahweh to bring it about. And, you know, we have to learn that lesson ourselves again and again and again in life. We never stop learning that lesson. At least I don't anyway. We're such creatures of weakness. You know, problems come up, difficulties come up. What can we do about this? How can we handle this? How can we get out of that situation? How can we overcome this? We use our brains. Well, actually, we don't use our brains. We think we use our brains. Work out ways and means of handling this and dealing with that. The last thing we think to do so very, very often is to leave it all in the hands of Yahweh. Because after all, if Yahweh worked on the behalf of His people down through the ages in the miraculous ways that are revealed in Scripture, if we still have the same God, isn't He still capable of working in the same way? For the same reasons? For the same purpose? and as far as God had been concerned, while he would never endorse wickedness, as has often been the case, in the case of David, Yahweh used the evil motives, the evil actions of evil men to accomplish his purpose. That was really how Yahweh's own son was crucified, wasn't it? As Peter says in Acts chapter 2. David could have perhaps been moved either outwardly or even secretly to rejoice at this great turn of events, particularly the way in which it had worked out involving the murder of Abner and now the murder of Ishbosheth, because it brought him to the verge of achieving the goal that God had promised him. But David's indignation at the evil perpetrated by the men who had done these deeds was very, very genuine. He did not think of advancing his own personal position. He was not moved by pride, nor was he moved by ambition. He was a willing servant of Yahweh. And if Yahweh said, I'm going to make you king, that was for Yahweh's purpose in the eyes of David, not for his own pride or ambition or self-glorification. You see, what a wonderful man of the truth he was. We have to strive to try and follow the wonderful example of this very beautiful man in character where he displays such touching faith and such selfless devotion to the cause of Yahweh and placing himself in the hands of his God. You know, in all these things, we'll see it again and again in David's life. We've seen it so many times already, particularly during all those years of persecution and suffering at the hands of Saul. There were three qualities that had brought David to this point in time where he's now about to be elevated to the throne of the entire nation. To do only that which he believed was right in the sight of Yahweh. He exercised faith and that he left all these his affairs of life in the hands of his God. We see a classic example of that later on in this fifth chapter. One of the most outstanding incidents in David's life God willing, will be part of our study at the beginning of next year if the Lord has not summoned us into his presence before then. An absolutely classic example of David's mind. He exercised faith in that he left everything in God's hands. So there was his integrity and there was his faith and there was patience. Think of all the years that had passed since David had been driven from the presence of Saul. All the years in which very few things had gone right according to the outward appearance of things. Suffering, trial, tribulation, fear, terror, persecution and yet it endured all those things. The Lord tells us that we must learn to endure as well. He endured all those things. Let's just keep a hand there for a moment and go to Peter in the first of Peter and notice a couple of passages here where Peter uses words which so beautifully described to us the character of David throughout all these years. And uh, we need to remember that now at this particular time he's uh, now around about 37 years of age. Some 20 years have passed since he was anointed to be the next king. 20 years, long, long time. Took a long time to get here to the point where he is now. But in the first of Peter chapter 2 and verse 19 and 20, We're probably familiar with these words, but they're verses that we need to live by all the time, brethren and sisters. They're just wonderful words, and we remember that they were written to a people, an ecclesia scattered throughout the then-known world, suffering persecution at the hands of Rome. They suffered fearfully during this time. When Peter wrote this letter of comfort to them, in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, This is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. It is thankworthy, that is to God. If a man for conscience toward God endure. That's the key word, isn't it? Endure, put up with it. Don't try and fight it. Don't try and make your own plans to overcome evil with evil or whatever it might be. And verse 20. Peter now explains that more fully. He says, what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, if you do wrong, or I do wrong, any of us do wrong, and we suffer for it, where's the glory in that? We just have to take it patiently anyway because we've brought it upon ourselves. But then he adds, but if, when ye do well, and put David right into that statement, because he did do well as a man after God's own heart, a man of faith, a man of courage, a man of integrity, a man of patience and a man of endurance. If when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. It is no wonder that David is assured of a place in the kingdom. And so he revealed those qualities because he knew that Yahweh would vindicate him in due time. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, we read that then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel, and Yahweh said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So there it is. It's all coming together, isn't it? Then came all the tribes of Israel to David. Now this, we ought to note, is despite the dreadful murders of Abner and of Ishbosheth, which very well could have undone the whole thing and left David and the tribe of Judah fighting against all the other tribes in a civil war that would have had bloodshed from one end of the country to the other. That because David acted wisely, because he acted prudently, because he did right, because he stood for what was right, because he acted in the spirit of the truth, according to the truth, the victory is handed to him. Not because of anything he has done to attain this end, but by doing that which was right in the eyes of Yahweh. They knew that David's hands had not been soiled in those terrible deeds, so his integrity remained untarnished. That's what brought the tribes to him. And the tribes had come to see that unity under the leadership of such a, an, a moral man, a spiritual man, was very highly desirable for the good of the nation. We need to bear in mind that at this time the Philistines represented a constant danger to Israel during this period of history. In the same chapter, chapter 5, just turn the page to verse 17, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel all the Philistines came up to seek David and David heard of it and went down into the hole. So you see, the Philistines had been making incursions into that land as we saw in our earlier studies. When Saul should have been pulling that nation together and uniting them all under the flag of the truth, a united nation in the service of Yahweh fighting the enemies of God, all he could think about was destroying David That's all he could think about. So the nation went to ruin. And they're not out of that by any means. They're about to come out of that now but they're not out of it, are they? So what was at stake was the unity of the nation. But even more important than that was the preservation of the nation. Those two things have to go together, don't they? The unity of the nation and the preservation of the nation. The same with the ecclesia today. It's no different. We want to try and have a unified ecclesia. It has to be on the basis of the principles of the truth, as David insisted upon. And it has to be upon the basis of the correct understanding and application of the things of the truth so that the truth and the ecclesia will be preserved. If the truth is allowed to fail for the purpose of compromise or for any other reason, then the truth will not be preserved. So we can talk forever about unity in the ecclesia. But if the truth is not there, what sort of unity is it? That happened in the first century, when ecclesia after ecclesia became a church. As we've been reading recently in the study in Eureka, Father Thomas reveals those things to us in his exposition of the apocalypse. That's what happened. It happened then, and it's happened time and time again. Look through the history of Israel. Look what Manasseh did to the nation. In actual fact as far as Manasseh was concerned the wonderful thing was that later on in his life when he reached mature years and he saw how wrong he had been and he put himself right with God it was a wonderful thing. But when you study the life of Manasseh you will find that he had gone so far in leading the people astray from Yahweh that he could not restore that situation to what it should have been. So you see how important these things are. It was a matter of unifying the nation. It was a matter of preserving the nation upon the basis of the truth so that the truth would be preserved. And they would then all stand together against a common enemy in the same way as the Ecclesia should stand together against the common enemy which is the flesh in all its manifestations particularly in an evil and corrupt world. And so they came to David and this is an incredible thing God willing, at one of our uh, classes next year, uh, if we are permitted to do so, uh, we'll be going into this in some detail because it's absolutely wonderful. When they came to David, to Hebron, as it says here in verse 1, it was an incredible gathering. More than 300,000 men all came to Hebron to make David king. Can you imagine a gathering like that? About one third of the population of the city of Perth. Quarter, whatever. Incredible number of people. 300,000 men all came to Hebron. And we'll see a little bit more of that a little bit later on when we come to have a, a brief look at the 1st of Chronicles chapter 12, where uh, we need to have perhaps Mark in the margin of our Bible there, next to chapter 5 and verse 1, that as a cross reference. 1st of Chronicles chapter 12. So you see. It's now been more than 20 years since Samuel had anointed David. A long, long time. When you think of it, nearly 30% of David's entire lifetime had been packed into those 20 plus years. And what years they had been. But now after all the trials and the tribulations, we find that it is Yahweh who is vindicated. We might tend to say here it is David that is being vindicated and in a sense that's true. But above David is the one eternal spirit because you see Yahweh had said that all these things would come to pass and when David was anointed to be the next king over Israel it didn't happen the next day, it didn't happen the next week it didn't happen the next year it happened more than 20 years later and now after the trials and the tribulations David's faith in Yahweh is vindicated. And that's the way it will be for us if we strive to develop the David spirit. And so they come to David and they say, where are thy bones and thy flesh? You know, we look at that and we think, well, isn't this wonderful? You know, because they, they, they've all seen the light and everything's coming together in accordance with the divine plan. They come to David, they've never said this to him before, but they say, We are thy bone and thy flesh. But you can't help feeling in yourself as you read those words. What took them so long? It took them 20 years. In that sense, of course, here we've got a type of Israel after the flesh, where they refused their king when he came under them. But when he comes the second time, they will say to him, We are of thy bones and thy flesh. Thou art the Messiah of Israel. That's the type. But you see, these elders of Israel were so long in coming to this understanding and many of these men who are now saying this so ardently would have been in the army of Saul pursuing David and trying to kill him years earlier. But in any event, that's beside the point, isn't it? They saw the light. Well, it took them a long time. But they say to David, thou art are thy bones and thy flesh. I believe they're using here, and it's very ironical, brethren and sisters, they're using Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and verse 15, which they had misused when they insisted to Samuel, back in of Samuel chapter 8, that they wanted a king. You might recall when we did our very first study on the life of David, we dealt with that, we dealt with a way in which the monarchy had been established upon really a wrong foundation when Saul became the first king. Not because God wanted him to be a king. Remember Samuel went to Yahweh and he said, look this is terrible, they want a king. And Yahweh says to Samuel, don't worry about it Samuel, you can't do anything about it. They have not rejected thee but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Yahweh was their king. They didn't want him anymore. They wanted a king, they said, like all the nations. We wish to ape the Gentiles. That's what they said to Samuel and to their God. Now these words are being invoked correctly because remember it says there, when thou shalt make a king over thee, he has got to be of thy brethren. And so they're using these words here, but they had not used them right the last time. But because they're now being used correctly, it's going to be altogether different. It's going to have God's blessing. And so in that sense, we have to learn from here that it's important that we understand how we use Scripture, when we use the Scriptures. If we use it as the elders of Israel did in the first of Samuel chapter 8 and use it wrongly, it'll be disastrous as it was for that nation. If we use it correctly, then Yahweh will act according to His will. And so they acknowledge David, they acknowledge His Personal characteristics. And they say here, finally, you'll notice that they acknowledge in verse 2. In time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel. They remember the courage and the warrior characteristics of David, a fearless leader of the people, because his faith was in Yahweh. And Yahweh said to them, these men now say to David, Yahweh said to thee, thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. They are now acknowledging that Yahweh had actually ordained that David should be king. Yahweh said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1, I have provided me a king. And now Israel is acknowledging that in the same way as they will acknowledge exactly the same thing when they come in all humility and submission before the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember these words, because they apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh has said, I have provided me a king, my son, to be the saviour of the world and the Messiah and the deliverer of Israel, a prince and a king over all the nations. And so with these words we are now introduced to the way in which David becomes king and God willing we will continue our studies along these lines in chapter 5 in the coming year.